Well, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. I don't think I've preached in Hebrews in a while. I'd like to read to you verses 24 and 25. Probably very familiar to some of you at least. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Our family enjoys eating out once in a while and one of my favorite parts of going out to a restaurant is the beverage refill. My favorite is iced tea and, and wait staff who get to know me know that it's better to just leave the pitcher on the table, that that would work out for their lives better because they'll be refilling my glass multiple times. On more than one occasion, I've seen our waitress or waiter see my once again empty glass from across the room and stop and just turn around, sometimes with a sneer or with some sort of uh, eye roll that they don't think I saw. The more efficient wait staff learn to just never come by the table without a pitcher And the really, really top-notch ones can refill without even stopping. They can just kind of pour as they go, and and they get that down. The drink refill is a uniquely American invention. It's typical of the prosperity and excesses we've gotten used to in the greatest free market economy in the world, and now we just expect that. And so along those lines, I want to be your waiter today. I want to serve you. I want to be your waiter to provide some refills for something that we've already served multiple times in multiple ways, and that is sound ecclesiology, the study of the church. And so before, in just a few weeks, we sink our teeth back into the Gospel of John. For just a a few weeks, I want to do what I'm calling healthy church refills, just to kind of top off our understanding and help bolster your grasp of some key basic issues in Christ's church. And so I'm going to do the who, what, and why of water baptism, the vital necessity of the Lord's table. But today, what I'd like to start with is what I'm calling signs of a thriving church member. Signs of a thriving church member. Now, to kind of get our thinking going in the right track, I want you to picture a scene, and the scene is in your house. You have a number of people coming into your home. You've cleaned the house. You've put your best foot forward. You're eager to serve and love your guests. You have a wonderful, healthy, and nourishing dinner that's tasty, that's satisfying, that you're, you're eager to, to partake in with them. And you really go all out to bless those in attendance. You want to feed them. You want to provide your very best for them so that they can go home feeling like they've truly been blessed. Over the course of the evening, the group gets closer and conversation becomes a little bit more real, a little bit more personal. Real life circumstances begin to be brought up. Even tears are shed. Laughter happens. Vulnerability happens. And so at the end of the evening, everyone says, we need to do this again. And you say, great, let's do it again next week. And so you meet again and then again and then again. And these people who begin to come regularly, they've formed a real bond over their love for the meal that you share together and their mutual love for each other. And so now they're even serving and helping each other and investing in each other's lives at a meaningful level. And then at one of these dinner meetings, one couple doesn't show up. And then the next, and the next. And so you call the couple, and they say, 
oh yeah, we, we decided to move on. Thanks for all the meals, but we decided we don't really like your house anymore. The people you invite are kind of weird. And to be honest, we don't like your cooking either. So we'll see you around sometime. You would be stunned. You would be shocked to have formed as a group together and have someone essentially just decide that you no longer cut the mustard for them and just to drop off the radar. All of us here would say that's horrible. But what I just described happens in the local church 52 Sundays a year. Church members just drop off the radar, often with no thought to the relationships that have been formed, with no thought of gratitude for the spiritual food that's been provided, no thought of the family connection that we've developed together. Some have called this consumer Christianity. This is the the idea that the church member is the consumer and the church is the product. And the minute I tire of the product for any reason whatsoever, then I simply find a new product. You know how I can tell when somebody has been taken in by the falsehood of consumer Christianity? It's when they speak in terms of the church and me as two separate entities. In reality, we shouldn't say, welcome to Grace Bible Church. We should say, welcome, comma, Grace Bible Church. It's not that, well, I decided that the church is not a good fit for me wait a minute, you're part of this. We are part of a system together. We are a family together. Any more than you would allow a child in a family to say, I've decided that your family is not for me. Wait a minute, you're part of the family. And this is a a horrible problem in the American church. This wasn't the attitude that we would have seen in the church at Thessalonica. If you went through the book of 1 Thessalonians and you compiled a description of that church, Here's what you would see in chapter one. They work and labor for the cause of Christ. It's a labor of love. They're characterized as steadfast in their hope. They're focused on Christ's return. They strive to achieve spiritual maturity. They follow after their shepherds, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. They work to imitate them. In fact, they set an example for all the believers in a two-province area, Macedonia and Achaia. They spontaneously evangelize continually and they love the gospel and they love each other. That's just chapter one. Chapter two, they love the preached word of God. They cherish it so much that they desire to be sanctified, changed, made Christ-like through the preached word. They suffer for the gospel. They're being persecuted. They're opposed. They're afflicted by those all around them. They're so pleasing to the apostle Paul that they've call, he's been calling them You are my glory and joy. And he says, you're the reason I can boast to God that my ministry has been successful and you are the proof. Chapter three, they love one another deeply. They long for their shepherds. They have an abiding affection and love for Paul, Silas, and Timothy because of the the spiritual food and nourishment that's been provided to them. In chapter four, they're living lives that please God. They're loving each other so much that Paul says, you have no need for anyone to write to you for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. And to top it all off, they are looking ahead to the glory of the end times. That is not a consumer-driven church. The consumer Christian was unknown in that church. They were about the gospel, about the word of God, about Christ and about each other. Dr. Mark Dever 
I think has really helped put ecclesiology back on the map with his significant book 20 years ago, 21 years ago now, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. First published it in 1997. And I think it really helped give courage to church leaders to more actively shepherd their church rather than pandering to all the malcontents in their church. And it gave them the courage to stand on their own two feet again with their ecclesiology. And in this book, he makes some observations about the concept of church membership. And membership we might define as a covenant with a local body of believers in which you commit to submit to spiritual leadership and to serve the body as a whole. But he made some observations about church membership that a couple of factors have worked together in the American church to create a distaste for church membership as a commitment. The first factor, he says, is what he calls commitment phobia. The fear that if I truly commit to something, I might be missing out on something better down the road. So I'm always keeping my options open and not ever being all in. The second factor he lists is what he calls lone rangerism. To be certain not to be burdened by others and not to be a burden by others, let's just keep it simple and be relatively disconnected so that we can avoid discomfort. And I might add 20 years after his book, I might add the factor of the millennial generation that has a distaste for responsibility and commitment. That now there's the idea of I'm always going to keep my options open. You blink and they're 40 years old still keeping their options open. Now, my purpose this morning is not to make a case for church membership. That case is ironclad in scripture. We've made that case in other settings, in other sermons. The concept of church membership is easily proven from the Bible and it is the practice of the healthiest churches. Please don't come argue about whether church membership is good or not. That is a foregone conclusion. My point this morning, though, is to examine what a thriving church member looks like. One who's experiencing Christ in the church the way Christ designed it to be experienced, designed in his word as the head of the church. Now, you might say, I don't need to hear this. I would answer, you need to hear this. And let me tell you why. In my 21 years as a pastor, I have heard the phrase, oh, I love this church so many times only to suddenly not see that person again, ever. It's heartbreaking for all the people who have loved you, who have invested in you, who took risks with you. And when you signed the membership covenant that says that you will submit to the elders and you will love one another and you will be all in in this ministry, I have found that you mean that at the moment, but when it comes to actually really submitting, sometimes you didn't mean it. And so we all need to hear this today. It is heartbreaking. And listen, The New Testament is utterly unfamiliar with that sort of thinking. It didn't exist. Now, I will give you this caveat, this exception. If a local church is endorsing the teaching of error or refuses to give you the spiritual meal that you meet that you need for your soul, then sometimes you have to make a hard decision. And and I understand that. But that's not usually the case. So what does a thriving church member look like? Well, the two verses we just read, Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, are going to give us six signs of a thriving church member. Six signs of a thriving church member. The first sign we might call methodical planning. Methodical planning. Now, it's important to understand the context of those two verses so that we're not just parachuting in here without any grasp of what's on either side of it. In the first 18 verses of Hebrews chapter 10, the writer makes an airtight case for the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. 
that the sins of those who would repent and turn to Christ have been completely washed away. And we see this argument summarized in verses 17 and 18. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. And then in verses 19 through 23, because of that assurance, we're told that we can have confidence to draw near to God, to have clean hearts and certainty of the faithfulness of Christ to save us. And because of that, the right response, the correct way to respond, the natural, the instinctive joy of the Christian is very naturally to gather with the body of Christ. This is innate to our new spiritual nature. And listen, that to one of the ways to do the things that, that are listed in verses 19 through 23, to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, to know the great high priest over the house or the family of God, to draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. One of the ways to do these things is, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so to do these things, the writer of Hebrews says, let us consider. This is a verb form that says, I hope you will. This would be the best thing. If I got all of my wishes, this is what I would wish for you. To consider something. It means to be concerned about something, to take notice of something, to think about something very, very carefully and thoughtfully. Now, our English Bible provides the word consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. It's accurate, but I want to point something out to you that in Greek, sometimes the word order makes a big difference on emphasis. Let me give you kind of a wooden Greek translation, just word for word. And let us consider one another to stir up love and good works. Did you catch the difference? Not let us consider how to stir up one another. Let us consider one another to stir up love and good works. And I I really like that because the emphasis isn't now just on how to do something. The emphasis is thinking about each other, to thinking about one another. And so if we put this all together, to think carefully of, to take notice of, to be concerned about one another, well, what does that mean? Well, if I were guessing, my best guess would be that it means something like this. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But that's just if I were guessing. To consider is to give something significant thought. That's why I'm calling this methodical planning. What's your plan? What's your strategy for considering one another? The average American church member, if he sets an alarm, rolls out of bed, barely in time to screech into church without a thought of what is going to happen when he arrives. And we just arrive and we sit down and say, feed me. Just do something for me. There's no forethought. Have you considered how you can be a blessing? How you can bless others? Maybe maybe all you can do is pray. Maybe that is your ministry. Well, at least let those that you pray for know you're praying. 
A lot of corporations have their employees write personal mission statements to focus their efforts. How much more should you have a personal mission statement for how you will consider one another? How you will be that person who goes out of your way to have deliberate forethought. Well, let me give you at least one idea, and that is the second sign of a thriving church member, what we might call modeled love. Modeled love. Being a model, an example, a prototype, as it were, of love. The writer says, consider how to stir up one another to love. And again, the Greek word order is important. We're to stir up love. What does it mean to stir up? This is a very strong word. It, it means to provoke. It means to, to arouse activity. It has the implication of stimulating a change in somebody's heart, of changing their motivation, changing their, their attitude. And it has the idea of an almost instantaneous change, that you see something that so deeply impacts you that you will never think about that thing the same way again. It stimulates a new internal heart. Now, this isn't so much the direct teaching on love, and this isn't even confronting someone that they aren't very loving. It's simply modeled love that makes others take notice. As a matter of fact, the word for stir up is where we get our word paroxysm. It's a a sudden attack of an emotion or an activity. We might say a paroxysm of crying. It's an impact on your soul that's so deep and so rich that it provokes you the thought. In fact, it's a word that can actually mean to irritate you. You ever see somebody who's so obedient to the Lord that it just makes you mad? You just kind of say, man, that's just not fair. You're just setting a standard. That's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. Do that to one another. Cause that paroxysm, that, that arousing of thought, that provocation where you might reevaluate yourself, you might dominate your thinking, might even cause some guilt over your own inaction and coldness toward others. Let me give you an example of a paroxysm. And this is one that happened to me, a a sudden realization. A number of years ago, when I was still on the staff at the Master Seminary, I stepped into the men's restroom in the faculty staff area. And finishing at the sink was the dean of the seminary, Dr. Richard Mayhew former Navy commander, an eminent theologian. When you step into his presence, you just sort of feel like saluting. I mean, it's just, it's instinctive. Before I could even greet him, I noticed, here he is, the second most important man on that entire campus, other than Dr. MacArthur himself. I noticed that he has paper towels in his hand and he's wiping down the countertop. Not only his own mess, but the messes that others had made. And being a former Navy commander, he finds a little corner and he rubbed it to make sure it looked good. He never said a word about it, but that provoked me and reminded me about the concepts of care and ownership. It was a wordless lesson that I'll never forget. What are the wordless lessons that you're teaching others by way of example in love? And I'm not speaking to those of you who have naturally boisterous personalities. Some of you were born... To, to do that, others of you weren't. I'm speaking to every believer. Do you determine never to gossip about another believer, meaning that you are go- not going to say anything that you wouldn't say if he wasn't present? Are you trustworthy, meaning can someone entrust their hurt to you without fear of impatience or unkindness? Do you listen, especially when somebody says you're not listening? Are you inclusive, James 1 warns us not to pick our friends based on social and economic status. 
Are you gracious and patient? Or when somebody isn't being sanctified as quickly as you want them to, do you harden your heart? Do you let people be who they are without only being drawn to those who are just like you? So my question is, what is your plan to model love, to be a prototype that others can follow? Your mission, if I can put it this way, is to deliberately spread a viral culture of loving one another. A number of years ago, I had the opportunity to write a guest post on a blog. And so I wrote an article called Operation Contagious Love, Making Your Church More Loving. I suggested a couple of ways to consider one another to model love. The first way was to make a family plan. Make a family plan. This includes avoiding joy killers like complaining and gossip or negative attitudes. It means to plan for affection. How many people today can you smile at? Can you hug? Can you encourage? It means to plan for hospitality. How can you have people in your home regularly for fellowship? It means to plan for what I called hot targets, meaning those who tend to fall through the cracks, who tend to be the wallflowers in the church. And the second way I suggested considering one another was to meet a tangible need. That if you find out about a need that you can literally meet, don't just tell the member care team, meet the need. Be the member care team and meet that need. But methodical planning and modeled love, that can actually happen in any organization, not just the church. So what makes the church unique? Well, as we get farther into this text, we find more unique features to us as believers in Jesus Christ. And the third sign of a thriving church member we might call multiplied impact. Multiplied impact. In the same way that we cause, provoke, stir up love, verse 24 says we are to cause, we're to provoke, we're to stir up good works. James said it very bluntly in James 2, 17 and 18 that faith by itself, if it does not have works, is what? Dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. And what are these works? Well, it's very simple. It's everything that revolves around the purpose of the church, which is Colossians 1.28, that we proclaim Christ, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's the purpose. And everything we do toward that end is the work that God would have us to do. It's the use of our spiritual gifts in the church. In the 80s and 90s, it was very, very popular to hand out spiritual gifts inventories. And I've seen these tests that have been given to churches. Some of them are like 25 pages long. I mean, it's like doing your taxes. Well, the Apostle Peter made it really simple in 1 Peter 4. He said, most of you are servants and some of you are speakers. If you're a servant, serve. If you're a speaker, speak. End of paragraph. Very, very simple. Not many have the gifts of speaking. James 3, 1 says, not many of you should become teachers. Most of us have gifts of serving. But because the local church exists to worship and to proclaim Christ, this means that we're to do what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 2, 14, that it is God through us spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. We are to be a local body that spreads the fragrance of Christ and we do that by our work. So what do I mean by multiplied impact? Well, by setting an example of your service to Christ in the local church as a major, massive, huge priority in your life because that lifestyle of serving in the church is caught more than it's taught, 
your impact is multiplied in that you're not just serving, but you're inspiring others to do so as well. It always makes me so sad to see the the believer who has been in Christ for 10, 20, and 30 years and just never gets on the bandwagon of being involved in this church. I have never understood that. But we have to move on because these signs of methodical planning and modeled love and multiplied impact, they only happen if a certain basic habit has already been formed. And that's our fourth sign of a thriving church member that we might call mature commitment. Mature commitment. Verse 25 says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. In my years of ministry, I've seen professing believers of 20 and 30 years who still can't get their act together in terms of making the local church and regular attendance and fellowship a major priority of their lives. And on the flip side, I've seen brand new believers who never look back and just live in the church. I used to think that that was simply a problem of commitment. I now think that may be a problem of salvation. Because new believers that I've come across all they want to do is be with the body of Christ. And it never stops for their whole lifetime. But when somebody says, I just, you know, just having trouble rolling out of bed, just can't be committed and this and that. Really? 21 times, First John says, if you love Christ, you love the brethren. You love one another. I got here to the church early one day, a couple of years ago, and I was the first one here on a Sunday morning. And there was already a car sitting here in the parking lot. I went over and talked to this person. And I said, church doesn't start for like three hours. And she said, I know, but I just can't wait. That's a healthy church member. Now, before the independent-minded give the usual misinterpretation of verse 25, I get an email about this about twice a year. You can almost set the, the clock by it. Somebody says, hey, as long as I'm hanging out with other Christians, then I'm not neglecting this command. Sometimes at our Steadfast Conference, I'll meet one or two people like this who say, well, we have, a, we have a home church. That's what we do. Sorry, that doesn't work. Because we have to take the context of all of Hebrews in mind when we look at Hebrews 10. All of Hebrews, if we fast forward to Hebrews 13, verse 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Hebrews verse 13, verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them for they keeping watch over your souls. What is that? That is not the informal home church with no structure, no leaders. That's not a home church. That's a group of Christians who get together and open the Bible together. That's not a church. The Bible doesn't recognize that as a church. This is the organized gathering of the saints for a specific purpose of hearing the word, of prayer, of singing, of collecting an offering for the ministry, and for doing the work of the ministry as a body collectively. I've read this to you in the past, but I think it bears repeating. About 155 AD, I mean, the, the, the soil in the graveyards of the apostles isn't even isn't even grown over yet. They're recently gone home to heaven. In 155 AD, Justin Martyr wrote a description of a typical early church worship service. It's a little bit different than what we do today, but listen to the common elements. He wrote this in his book, The First Apology of Justin. This is chapter 67 called Weekly Worship of the Christians. Here's what he says. On the day called Sunday... There is a gathering together in the same place of all who live in a given city or rural district. 
the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read. The memoirs of the apostles are the, the epistles of our New Testament. As long as time permits, then when the reader ceases, the president, that's the pastor, in a discourse admonishes and urges the imitation of these good things that they just read. Next, we all rise together and send up prayers. And when we cease from our prayer, bread is presented and wine and water. The president, in the same manner, sends up prayers and thanksgivings according to his ability. And the people sing out their assent, saying the amen. A distribution and participation of the elements for which thanks have been given is made to each person. And those who are not present are sent by the deacons. You miss communion. Somebody's coming knocking on your door to say, where were you? Those who have means and are willing, each according to his own choice, gives what he wills, and what is collected is deposited with the president. He provides from that for the orphans and widows, those who are in need on account of sickness or some other cause, those who are in bonds, strangers who are sojourning, and in a word, he becomes the protector of all who are in need. But Sunday is the day on which we all hold our common assembly because it is the first day on which God, having wrought a change in the darkness and matter, made the world and Jesus Christ, our Savior, on the same day rose from the dead. In other words, he makes the connection that creation and new creation both happen on Sunday. For he was crucified on the day before that of Saturn, that's Saturday, And on the day after that of Saturn, which is the day of the sun, Sunday, having appeared to his apostles and disciples, he taught them these things, which we have submitted you also for your consideration. What did they do in their official gathering for worship? Scripture reading, preaching, taking an offering, caring for one another, corporate prayer, pastoral prayer, the Lord's table. Does that sound familiar? This is the gathering together that we're not to neglect. A Christian can get along without regular worship just like a fish can get along without water. In the same way, you must have it. And so the mature commitment says, this isn't a struggle, this isn't a burden, this is a privilege. And I would remind all of us that for us to gather together and to to pray in the name of Jesus Christ and to offer him our words and offer him our offerings and have God the Father accept this was paid for with blood. It was paid for by Christ. This isn't a burden. This isn't a struggle. To gather together is a privilege that was won at the cross. It is your joy. It is your delight. And if you see someone that usually sits around you and you haven't seen them for a week or two, call them, find them, go after them. Don't just wonder. Bring them. Now, as those who are committed to methodical planning, to modeled love, to multiplied impact, to mature commitment you more naturally fulfill the fifth sign of a thriving church member. We might call that mutual support. Mutual support. The writer here says that we're to encourage one another. It's a word that means to urge, to implore, to exhort. This is life-on-life involvement with each other. This is the church member who's brave enough to encourage another church member to be more attentive to preaching. This is the church member who's kind enough to ask, how is your walk with the Lord going? How can I pray for you? What have you been reading in the scripture lately? How can I be helpful to your prayer life? Will you come to our small group? I haven't seen you lately. Are you okay? 
How are you growing in the Lord? How is your marriage? How is your growth as a husband? How is your growth as a wife? How is your growth as a parent? You know, we've had Bible Training Institute going on here for five years. I've never seen you in there. Would you like to come with me? Will you join me? Well, it's not your speed yet. Well, how about Fundamentals of the Faith? Will you come with me and come there? Or listen, I'm going to be going out sharing the gospel with my neighbors. Why don't you come with me? You don't have to do anything. Just hold the tract and keep your mouth shut. That's fine. In other words, church members following the lead of the preached word are coming alongside each other for the sake of Christ-likeness and support. That's a church we all want to be a part of. And by the way, that has nothing to do with the size of the church. I have preached in churches with 30 people in it that was like preaching to an Alaskan Eskimo convention. It was so cold in there. I've preached in churches with twice this number of people who love each other so much that the, the, the facilities guys are on their knees begging God for the last person to leave so he can lock the door. As you've listened to the preached word, as you've taken advantage of our numerous discipleship opportunities, as you've purchased and read and, and, and ingested books from our Grace Equip bookstore, as you have sung and taken in the songs of our faith, You're changing and you're growing and you're becoming more and more like Christ and you know what the result is? This is what the Apostle Paul said. He said in Romans 15, 14, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. If I could put it this way, the healthiest, very, very healthiest of churches do not have a counseling ministry because they're all counseling one another. We're not there yet. We're working towards it. Don't wait for the church program. Just decide to mutually support one another in your journey toward Christ-likeness. You know, one of the healthiest ways to provide mutual support is be part of the culture of preaching. We are a word-centered church in which the primary piece of equipment in this church is this pulpit. We can get along without everything else. We cannot get along without this piece of furniture. For an example... At the beginning of this year, I challenged you to listen to 200 sermons this year, and many of you have taken that challenge and are even tracking your progress, and sometimes somebody will say, I'm up to this number or that number. That's contagious encouragement for those around them, because you know what happens when somebody tells me that? There's a person standing right over here who's not saying a word, who inwardly is being stirred, provoked, going, oh, I need to do that. That's good. That's the example we ought to be setting. Don't be like Diotrephes in 3 John. Diotrephes was a malcontent. He thought himself above spiritual authority. He liked to be first. He was a gossip. He was power hungry. He wanted recognition. He was a know-it-all. John says that when he comes to that church being written to in 3 John, that he was going to publicly rebuke him. Diotrephes, the discontented. Diotrephes, the disgruntled. Diotrephes, the dissatisfied. Diotrephes, the displeased. Well, he was about to be Diotrephes the Disciplined, Diotrephes the Disgraced, and Diotrephes the Dishonored. Can you imagine being immortalized in Scripture as the classic selfish church member? Instead, be like Demetrius in 3 John. He, quote, has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. In other words, what he believes and how he lives his life matches and everybody can see it. Be like him instead. But the writer of Hebrews saves the final knockout blow 
for the last phrase of verse 25, the thriving church member demonstrates methodical planning, modeled love, multiplied impact, mature commitment, mutual support. But if you want to be in the spiritual big leagues, the thriving church member demonstrates motivated perspective. A motivated perspective. What is the motivation to be a thriving church member? The motivation is, is that in about 10 minutes from right now, you could be giving an account to Jesus Christ for what kind of church member you were. The end of verse 25, we're to do all these things all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day is a term to mean the termination of world history in this age, the consummation of God's redemptive program. You understand that being a thriving church member is not something to pray about. It is not something to wait on the Lord on. It is something to obey in right now at this moment. Why? The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3 that no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day, same thing in verse 25, the day that's drawing near, the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation, again, the foundation is Christ. If, anyone, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you understand that it is possible to be a believer in Christ, live a completely displeasing, disobedient life before the Lord, and barely make it to heaven? Not because your works were going to get you into heaven in the first place, but because you lived an utterly useless Christian life. That is possible. And how many chances do you get at that? One. That's a motivated perspective, to be a church member now, not to pray about it, not to wait on the Lord. You don't have to pray about what God's will is already. Just do it. We're already told all the more as you see the day approaching. Now listen, this commitment to the local church, these signs of a thriving church member this is more serious than just trying to encourage you to be stellar in your love for one another because immediately after verses 24 and 25, there's a Greek word called an explanatory conjunction. It means, but I have more information about what I just said. Verse 26, here's the explanatory conjunction for, in other words, there's more you need to know about this If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. What is the knowledge of the truth? It is the truth. It's spoken of as a thing that you have received, that you have formally heard, believed, ingested, made a part of who you are. This is a person who has publicly acknowledged the truth. What truth? Verses 1 through 18, that Christ has provided a once-for-all sacrifice for sin. Verses 19 through 23, that the true believer can draw near to God in confidence. That verses 24 and 25, the true believer demonstrates salvation by intimate involvement with other believers in Christ in the local church in response to the near and certain coming of Jesus Christ. In other words, the one who isn't really that interested in the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ, the one who isn't really that interested in drawing near to God in confidence, 
And most importantly for our purposes, the one who isn't really that interested in loving believers in the local assembly, but instead is aloof, separate. I see the church as being here for me instead of the other way around, who isn't doing these things, isn't concerned about the soon and near coming of Jesus Christ. This may be a person that falls into the category that the Apostle John speaks of in 1 John three fourteen. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. And the verse I just read, verse 26, is terrifying. That if you've received the knowledge of the gospel, if you've been offered, verses 19 through 23, full confidence to approach God as a forgiven sinner, and if you've been offered the fellowship of a loving local church of Jesus Christ, which is the venue through which we walk in this life faithfully, and you're still in rebellion, still aloof, still disconnected, still a lone ranger, still discontent, still disgruntled, still complaining, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Is that the discipline of God to a believer? No. It is the wrath of God to a fake. Verse 27 but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now, why is this? Can I ask you a question? What more could God do for you than to provide a once-for-all sacrifice than to offer for you to come with full confidence to the throne of grace and to offer you a people with whom to walk through this life together? What more can he do? There is nothing else he can do. And therefore, you go to the fire. So what do we do about all this? I want to address all of you and I want to address three groups in our church. First, to all of you. The first sign of a thriving church member, I said, is methodical planning. I want to challenge you to write a mission statement for yourself concerning what kind of thriving church member that you're going to be. I'm going to talk more about that in a moment, but I want you to write a mission statement for yourself. The first group I would like to address Those of you that know in your heart that you're already all in, that you're already all in, I've been here long enough to know that I can pretty much name you by memory. Those who are already all in, you're giving yourself to the body of Christ. You love the priest word. You love the saints. You love your leaders. You serve as much as you possibly can. You're humble. You don't boast. You're appreciative. You don't look for self-gratification. You look to gratify the needs of the church. Well, for you, I join the Apostle Paul in commending you and in saying, as he said to the saints in 1 Thessalonians 4.10, but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Be the ones who inspire and bring alongside those around you. So write your mission statement to include influencing others. These to include influencing others. This is the second group I'd like to speak to. Some of you who are not yet married or no longer married for whatever reason, Paul translates this state in your life into uncommon devotion in the church. He says in 1 Corinthians 7.32, the unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. Listen, this isn't some sort of consolation prize to the unmarried. You are the prize to the church. I praise God for our unmarried adults. You are the prize. You're the gift not just to one person, but to many, many people. So you write your mission statement with aggression, with gusto, because you can do more than anyone else. 
I knew a single young man that made a determination that he would spend 50 hours of his week in service to the church every week. Because he said, I have a job. I have 50 hours to serve. That still gives me 68 hours to do with whatever I want. A third group. I don't often say this, but this is my favorite one. They're precious to me and to all of us, to you beautiful, valuable, priceless, older believers in our congregation. I know that you may be at the time of your life when you don't feel very thriving anymore. When just taking care of yourself now consumes a large portion of your time and energy. I remember my grandparents when they were up in years and both my grandfathers were pastors and it reached a point where one grandfather, he, he just naturally woke up at like three o'clock in the morning. He was taking a nap before anyone else was up yet. And it took him till noon just to kind of get, his, get himself going and everything. And by then he'd already been up for so long that he needed another nap. And then in the afternoon between about two and four, he hoped that he could be really productive. And about then he started kind of going down again. I understand that. And we all understand that. But I also know that many of you have so faithfully served the Lord in years past. We have in our church former faithful elders who have served the church of Jesus Christ for decades. And we commend you and we thank you. I know that for many of you, the glory years of being in the thick of everything that's happening in the church, that those may be beyond you now. And we understand that. But can I read to you the mission statement of an elderly saint? I cannot do the things I used to do, but three things I can. First, I can love. So I will greet and smile and hug as many people as I can when I am with God's people. I will learn children's names and I will tell people that God loves them and so do I. Second, I can pray. So I will keep a prayer list and find those people on my list to keep up with their needs and pray weekly for them and with them if I can. Third, I can write. I will write notes of encouragement to those I pray for and to those who are doing the work of the ministry. My mission is I can love, I can pray, I can write. To all of you as church members, write your mission statement. And listen, I'm going to up the stakes on this for us. Any of you, individual or families, who sends me your mission statement by email or otherwise in the next two weeks, we're going to take the names off of them and we're going to put them up on the PowerPoint that we have rotating before every worship service for a few weeks as an example to one another. Now, 125 words, that's your limit. The one I just read you is 125 words, so I know it can happen. My email is steves at gbcob.org and I want to see your mission statements. If you don't do email, then bring something written, bring it to me, you can put it right here up on this pulpit and we will have these rotating up here so that others can be stirred up and provoked. Grace Bible Church, can we excel at Hebrews 10, 24 and 25? Amen? Amen. Our Father, we thank you for the church. The church is so special to you. You sent the Lord Jesus Christ to purchase us with his very life, with his death. And so, Lord, we can do no less than to love you in obedience, to be all in. And so, Lord, I pray for this body of believers that meets here on Young Street, 
those of us who gather here together in this same place to hear the word of God, to worship Christ, to sing the songs of the faith, to pray with one another, to give gifts to the kingdom, to fellowship with one another, to be baptized as as believers in Christ, to receive the Lord's table, these things that we do together. I pray, Lord, that we would exemplify Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, that as you walk to and fro through our church, as you did in Revelation 2 and 3 with the seven churches of Asia Minor, that as you walk to and fro through our church, as the Lord Jesus, the judge of the church, the head of the church, as he examines us, that as a corporate body, we would be found faithful, we would be found pleasing to you, that we could do the things that are uplifting to the kingdom and helpful to one another. Lord, I pray for a man or a woman here who perhaps their problem is not loving the church, their problem is loving you. And I would pray for them, Lord, that even now that they would be convicted of their sin and that they would simply ask for mercy ask for the grace to be saved, to have Jesus Christ apply the full payment that he made for sin to their lives such that they could be clean and they could come with full confidence to your throne of grace. Lord, save those who are lost among us and bolster the faith of those who know you so that we might live lives that are pleasing to you, that we might finish the race, that we might run well, that we might fight the good fight. And go home to you spiritually exhausted because we gave you all we had. We love you and we thank you in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.